Welcome to Her and Boss, the podcast created by graduates to help young women find their inner entrepreneur. Hi everyone, I'm your host Nikki and today I'm speaking to Dr. Riam Kanzo. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode because not only is Riam an incredibly inspiring person, but we also cover some fascinating topics such as how to deal with the microaggressions many young women experience and the factors that go into creating an environment that fosters female entrepreneurship. Riam has a PhD in neuroscience and is passionate about bridging the gap between academia and industry. She's the founder of three businesses, the first is a consultancy, which we discussed early on in this episode. The second is Crowd Helix, a platform which enables academics and industry experts to collaborate on research projects. Finally, Riam is the founder and CEO of Conception X, a company which prepares PhD students to be venture scientists and turn their research into profitable ideas. Enjoy! So we start every episode with three quick fire questions so that our listeners can get to know some fun facts about you. Okay. So I've got three. Just answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. So number one, what's your most used emoji? Uh, the smiling devil with the horns. Oh, <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> yeah. What's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, the Ace of Spades by Motorhead. Cool. And what, who is your childhood celebrity crush? Oh, Alan Moore. Slightly unusual, but I really loved his comics and his works. Okay, fair enough. I'm ashamed to admit I don't know who that is, but I'll look him up afterwards. (laughs) So I just wanted to start talking a bit about your PhD because I think it's so awesome that you've done one. So how does having a PhD fit in with being an entrepreneur? And you've previously said to me that you stumbled into entrepreneurship. Could you tell us a bit about what you actually meant by that? Yeah, that's an interesting one because... um... When I was doing my PhD, which was about 12 years ago, I think um, where I was um, in Oxford, entrepreneurship, especially in science department, wasn't something that they pushed or necessarily Mm -hmm. encouraged. Like it was very much on the outskirts of everyone's awareness, because if you look at push forward 12 years, everybody's trying to do it now, spinning out a company, commercializing research, like Doing a PhD, uh, sure, it's a very deep scientific endeavor, but it's also like a test of fortitude because you have three years to develop something quite novel. And, you know, some of us have quite hands-on supervisors, but others do not. And it's mostly down to you to carve your own um, work schedule, carve your own milestones, uh, plan your time ahead, not go insane. And then, you know, at the end, produce something that other people want to consume and when you're on a founder journey, I think there are a lot of things in parallel uh, because mm-hmm. no one is necessarily telling you what you need to do. Uh, you just have to make decisions based on uh, what you think is right at the moment with the advice of a few other people. So it's very different than um, being employed, uh, especially in a job that's very well structured where you have lots of top-down um, influence mm-hmm. and direction. That's a really great point about Um, how doing a PhD or even I guess a dissertation or independent research project is kind of akin to being an entrepreneur um, because you have to come up with your own unique idea and then you're kind of responsible for executing that idea from start to finish Um, so yeah I think that's a really important point and experience for recent grads to maybe think about if they've done something similar during uni Um, and then I guess moving forward a bit after your PhD you started your first company 
where you attempted to commercialise academic research. Would you consider that endeavour a success or a failure? I mean, in, in hindsight, I would be very surprised if anything did come out of it with <laughs> the level of uh, preparation and uh, planning that went into it. So this is uh, the company which I started uh, as an attempt to kind of sell research to larger corporates uh, as I was doing a postdoc. And um, I wouldn't necessarily, I think failure is too strong a word. I think I failed to achieve what I wanted out of it mm -hmm. because I came to it with uh, the naivete of someone who's quite ambitious, but who doesn't necessarily um, <laughs> have enough experience yeah. in the world to actually like know how, how, how to proceed forward. So, I mean, that was a huge learning curve because what I learned from it um, was very much like the basics of starting a business, how you start a company. I mean, these things seem trivial now because I've done them many times over, but back then it was such a new thing. As a, how old was I then? As a 22-year-old, those were quite new um, topics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was the first company, but yeah, it was just, I think it was a good initiatory um, pathway into what it means to start a company without having any background in entrepreneurship, no type of business studies. I mean, I, I was trained in science and psychology through and through. So all of this mm -hmm. was kind of learning by doing. Um, mm -hmm. So I kind of wish I had the opportunity uh, when I was doing my PhD to kind of um, have the level of support that students have access to right now. I think especially at that age, so I'm around that age now, and just mm -hmm. the thought of starting something and then potentially failing or even if the business idea itself doesn't fail, but you feeling like you've not achieved what you set your mind to can be really daunting. Mm -hmm. But do you think it was worth it just to give it a go and then absolutely. learn from it and then try again? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because even if you don't end up being, you know, the unicorn startup founder, the skills that you learn uh, by just starting a business really put you there it really opens up a lot more opportunities for you in terms of career choices in terms of what you can do you become well versed in quite a different range of matters that really you learn most by doing and not mm -hmm. reading about in a book um, so it's quite exciting and then I guess moving on to your second company was Crowd Helix yes. um, which is actually quite a very large platform connecting researchers and academic institutions with industry. How mm. did that experience compare to the first and did you feel a lot more prepared or was it still a learning experience? So that came about um, a bit later on in my career. So by that point, um, I had started doing a bit more project management. I knew a little bit more about intellectual property and conception uh, and sorry, Crowd Helix came about um, as a collaboration with colleagues I had at UCL and people who I was working with. So there were five of us um, as a founding team. Um, I was the only female in the team and also the mm -hmm. youngest. Uh, and it was quite an adventure. Um, I guess it was just done differently because I came to this with a few years under my belt uh, with the knowledge of um, how universities work. Uh, with a bit more knowledge about paperwork around certain collaborations, about how grants work, about what it means to run a company, about how it's different than you know being employed in a job, but still not enough to uh, prepare me to be on the best and most 
equipped founder route ever. So just kind of indicates mm -hmm. how, how difficult it is and how, you know, but like everything, practice helps. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's comforting to hear you say, though, that even on your second attempt, you didn't feel like you were like the perfect founder or perfect entrepreneur yet. And mm -hmm. the fact as well that in between these ventures, you were you were working as an employee. It's not like you have to, as soon as you decide you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to just do it and be it straight away. No. And I mean, I would very much doubt anyone who says that they feel like they're the perfect <laughs> founder. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's a good place to be in your head if yeah. that's what you think. But it's just, you know, it's a very multifaceted role that changes quite a lot as the company grows. And if you don't grow with it and realize your mistakes, you must be doing something wrong. And then you touched on it briefly when you were explaining Crowd Helix that you were one female founder in a team um, of men. And this has come up a few times in the podcast already, but I don't feel like we talk about it enough kind of in real life. So I love the opportunity to talk about it on the podcast. But so, for example, I went to an all girls school and then I did psychology as my degree as well, which um, definitely had a higher proportion of women than men. And so it's not until I started working on things outside of uni that you realize that certain environments have a very gendered dynamic and in a professional setting that can be quite, it can be, I think it can take its toll on you sometimes. I don't know if you had any experiences or stories that you wanted to share about that. Um, I do. Um, so... When I took my first job in UCL, I was um, in the Center for Computational Science. So starting with that before getting to the company, yeah. it was sure. it was 90% uh, men. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I joined, and I was also one of the youngest. So of course, within the scientific world, there's always, um, especially in a postdoc, there is a, a bit of a hierarchy of knowledge where people have been there longer, have experienced more and have done more research. Mm -hmm. And there you kind of get the illusion uh, of a certain kind of meritocracy, although um, it, 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 it appears quite differently when people are selected to be nominated to grants and that becomes then a bit more complex. But uh, when I when I joined my um, uh, Crowd Helix with my four male co-founders, who I'm still in very good terms with, we're friends. First of all, regardless of gender, no company should have five co-founders. It's too many, too many cooks. <laughs> Especially if the yeah. five co-founders have quite a lot of overlapping skills, where it's not really clear who's responsible for what. But um, and I don't think any of this was because of the specific way which I was treated by my co-founders because they were they were quite um, open. There was a lot of respect between us. Uh, and also I was the only one with the doctor title. So I was put forward mm -hmm. to a lot of initial meetings and conversations because like from a scientific perspective, that would give you credibility. I think yeah. more, more of what I felt was the difference was how we were approached and treated during meetings with external uh, institutions, mm -hmm. uh, conferences, or um, in kind of business development meetings with potential partners, where um, I think a common experience that a lot of other um, female founders share is that if you are at the same table with um, a male co-founder, they get more FaceTime, they get more attention, more of the questions are directed at them. And that just happens uh, possibly unintentionally sometimes. It's just about how people have been yeah. conditioned <laughs> in the workplace and who they speak to. I think that was also confounded with the element of seniority. 
where um, mm-hmm. I mean, you have the double whammy of sexism and ageism. So I think, you know, for the slightly more seasoned co-founders that I had, they just were perceived possibly as more credible um, at a meeting where we were all sitting as equals on the table. I mean, that's not new. Um, And I think that's very common as well. You just learn to navigate it. That point about it being a double whammy between sexism and ageism, I think is so true. And I think, you know, other people will kind of experience more layers of discrimination on top of that as well. Um, And -hmm. I just wanted to point this out as well. In the email you sent me over the weekend, you said you can't wait to be old so that people can get off your back, which I thought was quite (laughs) funny. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to be like, you know, slightly older than middle aged where I can just sit at a table and then just say what needs to be done. And... People will just see a seasoned, uh, slightly older <laughs> lady entrepreneur, and then we can just get past the, you know, the young female conundrum. Uh, <laughs> Looking forward to it, definitely. Um, and I guess, how do you respond to these situations? Because I feel like I, if I'm ever in a situation like this, I don't realize it until afterwards, and I kind of reflect and think, okay, yeah, that was a little bit inappropriate. Do you have any tips on responding in the moment? Um, that's a really good question because um, I think women, especially when you're younger and when you're when you're on a very ambitious career growth plan uh, path, there's quite a lot of obstacles in the way. There are lots of situations where you have microaggressions, people making comments. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times people thought I was my my PI's assistant when we used to travel on conferences. I'm like, who, mm. who would? Who would travel with their assistant? That's just weird. It's just, you know, the inherent mm-hmm. sexism. And I guess, um, and it started even earlier with, you know, being uh, at a, a good university, the competitive environment there. I think many women um, to kind of continue growing and to be on their path, uh, just learn to kind of take it on and be cool and be one of the boys. Yeah. So you just take everything on as a joke, even if something is quite offensive or a microaggression or if your views have been slighted or if your opinions mm-hmm. have been doubted, you just kind of laugh it off and then, you know, you go out with everyone and because you're the cool girl. You, you don't care. You just take it on and then, yeah, you know, just move forward. And then I think that just becomes ingrained as a pattern of behavior uh, where because you don't necessarily react, uh, that just continues. When that progresses and you're you know, at a board meeting and someone makes a comment and then you, you just go on with it and laugh it off again and again. And I think, I mean, from my perspective, it's only now that I've started to just take a bit of a pause and kind of see how I'm reacting and then responding. Because I think one thing that we've been ingrained with in this kind of modern work society is just the need to always react quickly. And perhaps, you know, just react quickly, just get it done, do it. When the reality is that there's quite a lot of value that you can get by just kind of stopping, pondering before you respond. Like nothing's going to run away. And if there's anything that this global pandemic has taught us that we can all do a bit well to just sit a bit with our yeah. <laughs> well. So I think um, it's it's this year only after three companies and you know 12 years after my PhD and different jobs that I'm just starting to call it out. Um, mm-hmm. when I see when I see something like that, whether it's at the board level, whether it's a comment that someone made, whether it's an email that was, you know, that I received negatively. Um, 
And it's very interesting how people react because I don't kind of respond aggressively. I just kind of point out that that wasn't necessarily fair and that I don't think I would have received the same reaction if, you know, my, my name were George and if I were 48, uh, for argument's mm-hmm. sake. And so I think it's really interesting how people react when you call them out. First thing, it's really good to mention it. You should get it off your chest. It's If it's not for yourself, it's for future people um, that might be subject to that. So it's almost, now I see it like a duty to call it out because if I continue with the same kind of cool person behavior who doesn't really mind and will just take it on the chin, uh, a lot of people will not learn. Um, mm-hmm. So the reactions are twofold. First is a profound and supreme apology. Uh, people feel well, I didn't mean it, etc. And then quite another one is denial. Almost like, well, yeah, um, you're seeing this incorrectly. Almost kind of throwing it back on you. Like, don't be... Don't, don't be, be so sensitive. sensitive. Yeah, yeah, don't be sensitive, right? And um, Well, actually, this is not sensitivity. You're just being rude. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know enumerating why that is the case and then you know depending how they react and and it's just really funny um the denial usually comes with the same objections that someone accused of racism or anything else comes but you know i have a lot of female employees yes and yeah i'm like that doesn't say anything yeah. about the stupid remark that you've just made yeah and one i've got before is like oh but i love my mom i have sisters like, like all this stuff and you're like yeah i know but <laughs> doesn't matter and you know these comments they don't necessarily just come from men they also come from women in positions of power and i think we all know that um so it's not all this is by no means saying there are many older men who are sexist it comes from everywhere uh, it's just very ingrained in society, even yeah. if we're better off than other countries um, and cultures. For sure. I think you're right that a lot of the times it is unintentional. It's just how people have grown up. But that that doesn't mean that you shouldn't call it out and, you know, calmly explain to that person what they've done wrong. I think I like that about just taking a step and taking a breath before mm-hmm. going going into it. Yeah. And, um, you know, if they if they get agitated, you can always ask them not to be so sensitive. So... <laughs> I love that. Um, And so I guess the next thing I want to talk about, which goes quite well off that, is that now with Conception X, so I guess the whole idea is about helping people doing their PhDs who are going through research to kind of explore entrepreneurship and turn those ideas into something um, something profitable, something that can go into industry, which is, you mentioned something you wish you had when you were doing your PhD. How is this this idea as well created a really great environment for women? I think uh, I think this is a really good question because it touches really on the heart of what we do. And it goes back to like the systemic structures that have been put around classical entrepreneurship, which invariably favor, favor one type of person who is typically a young white male from a privileged background. And I think it goes to these values of, you know, living your dream and like giving up your job and living under a bridge so that you can build your company. And then you have all of these examples of the founders of Google and Steve Jobs and everyone who's a unicorn now from Silicon Valley. So it's just these stories that perpetuate what you should be to be the creator of your own business. I think that's almost like an outdated model now. So in Conception X, we call them venture scientists. We don't even call them entrepreneurs anymore. And I think 
it means it, it means roughly similar things like someone who goes on on a path to create a product or a service that solves a problem it's just that the way we go about it is different the fundamental thing that we've done is that we've made a program that runs alongside the phd that doesn't require people to take time off this has been hugely popular uh, because we are dealing with a population of people who most probably have a job offer before they even finish their degree, if they're on that path. And if you are a female uh, and you probably, you know, are thinking about having kids or have two children, I think there is a very different risk assessment that you would do at the end of your PhD, where traditionally, oh, I want to build something. Shall I take a year off without a salary to try to do this at risk and you know live under the proverbial bridge? Or should I just take the job and get on with it? Yeah. And I think you know, research says that women in general are still likely to less likely to engage in risky career choices or risky behaviors than men are. I mean, that's that's probably more nurture than nature. Uh, mm-hmm. But the result is that the population of the people you see who are put in front of investors who are building companies still is predominantly men. So in Conception X, by making it a venture science program that runs alongside the PhD, I think we've just created an environment for entrepreneurship that de-risks it slightly, mm-hmm. seen as more collaborative, more like an education opportunity rather than a shark tank type situation where people will be judging you at every turn. So as a result, last year, half of our finalists were females. Uh, this year, the, the, the proportion of women in our cohort is higher than, than what you would expect in a, in a deep tech venture builder. Mm-hmm. And I would just like to emphasize that we don't select for gender to make it like that. So it's not like we have quota for women. Women are applying because they feel welcome. And they think yeah. this is something they can excel in and they are excelling. That's amazing. We'll have to get some of those those women on the podcast then. Definitely. They sound really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, we'd love to. Um, but what are some of the, do you do anything? So you said you don't select for gender. Are the applications when you go in, are they blind to gender? Is there any, are there any words that you look out for not to use? Because even as you were speaking there, I feel like a lot of the language we used to talk about entrepreneurship is very kind of, it seems very aggressive and kind of like high adrenaline, like, you know, like you say, like a shark tank. That's That sounds scary. <laughs> and I think it's also really important here to strike a balance because it's not that we're shielding people from what will be the real world mm. by creating yeah. like a, a fluffy website with come here and do these activities. And frankly, these are not necessarily the type of people we want to attract. I think it's about putting first and foremost the academic and scientific merit is what you're going to be selected for. Uh, calling this an education entrepreneurship program, assuring everybody that they have you know, an equal opportunity and that everybody has one-to-one support and attention. So when people see those things and they see that they have basically nothing to lose if they go through the program, they frankly probably start on the best adventure of their life because the first step of Conception X is not teaching any particular skills. It's about changing the mindset of people, showing that you can spend the rest of your career working for yourself on your own terms and solving a huge problem and create your own job, create your own company, create your own environment rather than ending up in a cubicle or, or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
it only takes that first step of, of seeing the possibilities as, as someone who's been trained as a scientist, as an engineer of this range of options that are available is really inspiring. And this is why myself and my team wake up every morning, get on, well, it used to be the office. That's why we turned on Zoom and we just yeah. crank out the hours because it's really an extremely rewarding thing to see. And mm -hmm. we're doing it as a passion project. We absolutely believe in it. And I'm really happy that PhDs who go through the program, so our minted venture scientists really like the program. They talk about it to their friends. And I see this as a movement. Yeah, that's amazing. So do you have a co-founder for Conception X at the moment? And what's coming next for the team? So, so Agatha, who is our um, chief operations officer, and who should definitely be on this podcast because she's an inspiration yeah. and an athlete and a superwoman. Um, she started off by being employed by Conception X before we actually spun out because we were initially a university project. But we've worked so much together that I, I really consider her more like a co-founder right now. And as this grows, um, I think it's important to recognize people's roles in the company and to show that, you know, it wasn't a sole journey. But for the rest of the team, um, who are Liv and Polly, um, we're just such a strong core team that now as we're thinking of the next step of Conception X, I'm looking at it as a founding team. Uh, I'm not yeah. looking at it as myself being kind of the, the, the sole founder and then having people kind of report to me or anything like that. I mean, I think I'm a better CEO than a manager, but you know, that, that's, mm -hmm. a different, that's a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I just, you know, I think that there's just so much value in trusting the people you work with. So one thing that I wanted to bring up before we kind of finish is, so we talk on this podcast a lot about confidence. Mm -hmm. um, and so you shared a story with me when we first met about how recently you were presenting Conception X to someone and your confidence and probably, to be honest, your expertise mm -hmm. were misinterpreted as arrogance. I just wanted to know how this felt and if you have other examples where most likely because of your mm -hmm. gender and your age, as we've discussed your expertise has been misinterpreted or you felt like you couldn't mm -hmm. express yourself or behave as you would naturally like to? Oh, yeah. Um, it's quite often that I'm called bossy, whereas I would just mm. like to see that um, like if, if, if I weren't a young woman, whether it would be interpreted as, you know, confidence or, 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 yeah. or, or uh, aptitude. But... Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, you shield yourself and everything. But I think that uh, that incident where um, it was just after the pandemic and um, I had I had been through a very difficult time uh, with my family and it was still quite raw. Um, so I'm still kind of on a day where probably I should have just taken time to, you know, relax and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I still had, you know, some meetings in the diary and I thought, nope, you know, gotta fly the flag gotta work for conception x this is what i do this is what i'm supposed to do so i get i get to, i get on a call um with, with two other uh women from a different institution and um i'm just talking about all the work what we're that we've done and we're not for profit and we've worked you know hours and hours and i guess i was you know in my mind putting on just 
a brave face and just being perfect because sometimes you have a hard day and things happen and you just need to go to work and that's that's the thing about being a startup founder you don't take a sick day off and hope things resolve themselves at work sure you have to take time off for yourself to relax but it can't last mm-hmm. forever like i had already been off for two weeks and then um there, there was something wrong with the screen sharing and I, I saw I saw that one of one of the ladies typed to the other that I was I was arrogant and that just kind of threw me it threw me off and I think you know they noticed and they probably didn't mean it or or whatever maybe it was just a usual thing but then I found after after that call was over which you know didn't necessarily lead to many tangible things so I I I just found myself just feeling really, really, really upset by that. And then I was upset at myself for feeling upset because I've been trained for so many years to just kind of take it on and just, you know, continue and just like not think about it um, and continue and just say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. But then I felt two things. The first was actually I should just recognize that I was, you know, hurt by this, especially that it came from another woman. And then the second yeah. thing is that I very much doubt that the same, if the same things I said were being, um, you know, told or explained by someone who was an older uh, man uh, would be interpreted in the same way. Because I think arrogant has quite a lot of negative connotations. I mean, I was on a call asking for collaborations. So it's just like, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. I think what I liked about that is that I was happy to just admit even in front of myself that that was something that made me feel bad and i think that's yeah that's a first step like when you're in the in the and the kind of leadership grind for so many years a lot of stuff just get brushed behind and i think that just leads to a lot of uh, passive aggressive behavior which probably is not conducive to the best work that you can do so yeah mm-hmm. it, yeah, I guess to the woman out there, if you are being presented to by someone who spent three years building um, a company, um, if they if they're confident, don't call them arrogant. I think it's, it's very straightforward. <laughs> yeah, and do you make a kind of a habit of reflecting on these experiences as I guess kind of a bit of you know self care and self reflection to make sure you're not getting too caught up in everything? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is really cliche, but I've started journaling a lot yeah uh, just taking time and I, I was I was a bit skeptical about it at first it's like I have so much stuff to write why should I write what happens but there is something quite um both useful and therapeutic to writing things down because you can also do some pattern matching um see how you know things affect your work because sadly it's very difficult to have a systemic view of how small interactions kind of lead to decisions and how things mm-hmm. work out. And as the company becomes bigger um, and, you know, more important, I think every decision is even more important in the decision three. So it's almost irresponsible not to sit back and reflect about these things um, and how they how they might affect uh, what you decide, because what you decide now affects quite a few employees a bunch of PhDs, a board, and, you know, the future of education. Mm -hmm. And so just to finish up, there's a question that we ask all of our guests, and it's what gives you confidence? I think to me, first and foremost, what gives me confidence is seeing the positive 
effect that we have on other people's lives and yeah. the transformative effect that we as a passion project give them to inform them better about making career choices and not have them go down the kind of reactive rabbit hole that ends you up doing a job you hate so no matter how hard it is no matter how you know what a, what difficult days you've had or what microaggressions you've had from someone random on 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 a on a phone chat if at the end of the day uh one of the phds drops you a note and says this was really great um i love this program um can i can i tell my friends about it i say well you know some people have spent their day hating their job and we are both having fun together, um, having a great team and also like affecting other people. And it doesn't matter if the path there was a bit winded and interesting and a bit messy. The important thing is that you got there and you're still kind of whole with, with the team that you care about. So yeah, I think it's just the age old things, right? Like results, collaboration and, you know, good friendships on the way as well. That's a good answer. I like that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've convinced me that if I were to ever do a PhD, I would definitely be working with Conception X. <laughs> well, that's 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 a great outcome for me and I hope you enjoyed doing it. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to keep an eye out for our next mini-sode. And as always, you can find out more about us on Instagram by searching at Her Own Boss Podcast. We would also love it if you could leave us a review and subscribe to hear the latest on finding your inner entrepreneur.